This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. Taylor, have you ever been sitting in an airport and you look up and you see a screen, um, well, the television screen, obviously, and it's playing one of those shows like Ameri- America's Funniest Videos, and if there's a cat thing, you cannot turn away. It could be anything else and you can turn away. So do you have like a cat story for us that we'll be riveted by and we won't we won't be able to turn our ears away? I don't know about riveted by, but we'll give it a try. Um, so I've talked about the little kitten that I found in the truck engine and rescued and that Sir Pounce de Leon, Leo. And um, he, from the... From the day that I brought him home, he was so tiny. He's just been a little purr engine and very vocal, very vocal. So he talks a lot, a lot. His attention. So he likes chasing bugs. We get a lot of bugs in the house because, you know, we live out in the country and whatever. And, um, and so when there's a bug, he talks to it as he's like trying to chase it or jump it. And sometimes like when I play with him with cat toys, like, you know, his favorite are the ones where there's something on a string, like you're holding the stick and there's something on a string. He does this thing where as he jumps, his mouth opens and he's like, "Ah!" and, and he's like jaw open and shut and you can hear it. And then sometimes he's talking to the thing too. So the other thing he'll do is when he wants my attention, like as the evening starts to settle, starting to get late, he knows it's time for bed. And he starts talking to me like, come on, let's go to bed because I always play with him right before we go to bed. And he wants to play. He's, he's one of either he's still in the kitten stage, which I don't know. I know with dogs, sometimes big ones, they can be puppies until they're about two years old. I thought with cats, it was like a year and he's over a year now, but maybe he's just so maybe he's still in that stage or maybe he's just a very active cat. I don't know. But he needs a lot of attention. He needs a lot of playtime. And he's very vocal when he doesn't get it. And so one of the things he he does and he has ever since he's very little is when he hears my alarm go off in the morning, he comes running to the bed. And it started originally because there are other cats in the house and I was feeding him kitten food and I didn't want the other cats to eat it. So I would feed him on the bed while I was there, his special kitten food. And so he got to this habit of when he heard my alarm, it was feed time. And now he hears my alarm and it's like, oh, I'm going to go make sure she's awake. But he doesn't (laughs) always wait for the alarm. And when it gets really funny is if his food bowl runs empty. And I can always tell when his food bowl is running empty because he gets vocal a lot more vocal. He starts doing more threading between my legs as I'm walking through the house, but 
he also comes, starts waking me up early. And normally when he wakes me up, he just wants to be pet and then he'll sleep next to me until I'm ready to get out of bed. But when his food bowl is empty, he comes, checks if I'm awake, walks all over me, talks to me, <laughs> we'll get a couple pets, runs off. 10 minutes later, he comes, checks on me, talks to me. And so anyway, this morning, I, he came in really early and I wasn't having it. And he's talking to me and he gets down. And the next thing I know, I hear clank, bang, 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 bang. He got up on the shelf where his food is, his food bowl is, and he <laughs> swept it down onto the floor like, and how do you like that? Are you going to get up and feed me now? <laughs> he's talking to me the whole time while he does it. It's like, fine, I'll get up and I'll get you your stupid food. So yes, that's my cat story. He's very entertaining and very interactive and it's hilarious to me and I love him so much and I'm so glad that he's in my life. <laughs> Does he know when it's time for the alarm to go off? Like when he start walking on your face two minutes before the alarm goes off kind of thing? No, not like that because, you know, my alarm pretty much goes off the same time year round, but the sun rises and sets at different Mm -hmm. times of the year depending on the season and so to him i think it has more to do with how long the sun has been up <laughs> and okay. so in the winter he comes well we'll see how it goes now like last winter he was still more a kitten right like so we'll see when we get to this winter if um if he comes and like doesn't come and wake me up to my alarm but then he hears the alarm and he comes running that type of a thing I remember, I think it was when we had the the kids still living at home and we had to be up to get them up for school. I've always been kind of an early riser, but when we had a consistent alarm going off, there would very often be like two or three minutes before the alarm went off, the cat would start stirring on the bed or might just jump up and lay on your face. And it's like, is it two in the morning? And eventually we just knew it was like, we got three more minutes to sleep and it was time to That's go. But it, funny. it may have been, I see, I've, I've always assigned the magical powers to cats. And so I always assumed that he just knew when the alarm was about to go off, as opposed to maybe it had something more to do with the sun, <laughs> which actually makes more sense. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just like know the magical that. powers of cats. The magical, yes, cats are magical. This is wrong with that. All right. I, we are going back to plot holes. We thought it might take us a little while to get back to plot holes, but it didn't. We are right back into it. Yeah, I, I had this document open and I was like, no, I got to finish this. I don't want to wait, you know, months to finish it and then forget, you know, where I was going with it. And so it's a little bit of a dilemma for me here now, because when we were talking about it in our last episode, I, my notes had run out and then I just kind of had to riff off of everything. And we were talking about our imaginary character, Jane, doing the very stupid thing of leaving the hotel room as like that classic tropey thing. And then we got to the point where I would start giving examples and then I didn't have anything prepared. <laughs> I just had to rip off of it. And so I knew to be able to use this for more, like to use it as a proper tutorial, I would need to build that out anyway. So even though we already sort of covered some of this territory in our last episode, I want to back up a little bit and not necessarily redo it, but do it where I've had time to really think it through and to give 
proper explanation and everything. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take us back to where we have, we'd finished talking about looking past the, we had been talking about looking past the label on the square, how, and we're talking about for those who are just catching up with us now, or maybe haven't been listening to the show uh, for a while that the, about fixing plot holes by ignoring the plot hole itself and focusing on the movement that led up to the plot hole, which we're calling that movement, the arrow, and we're calling the plot hole that's blocking that movement, the square. So in, we had been talking about how you've got to look past the label on the square to see what's really making it a plot hole in the first place. And then we went on from there, but I think that's how far I need to back up to be able to build to to, to create the logic and and make it flow for what's I'm about to say. I don't want to cut it too short, and then we're a little bit lost. So that's where I'm I'm coming back. So using our existing example, which was Jane leaving the room, that that was our plot hole that was labeled on the square, and then when we look past that label on the square to ask why leaving the room is a plot hole, then we see that for the plot to work, for the story to progress as it was intended, Jane needs to be kidnapped. And we know that Jane has been written as a rational, rational, reasonable character, and that there's no rational, reasonable reason for a rational, reasonable character to leave that room under those existing circumstances. So using the arrow and square approach to fixing plot holes, and here we move on, that we simply accept that Jane will be kidnapped and that Jane leaving the room is the mechanism through which that plot point is going to turn. It simply is, and we're not going to try and change it. We're not going to try and fix the square. We are going to look at the arrow, look at the logic and the story movement leading up to that. And we're going to be looking for small tweaks and changes that we can make along the way. And these are tweaks and changes that don't involve massive amounts of rewriting or restructuring. And we're going to change the logic of the story so that when Jane does leave that room, her decision is no longer going to feel like a very stupid thing. But before we can get into the weeds on what something like that might look like in a real life application, we have to establish a few key concepts. And this is where all the new material kind of blends into the old. So the first thing is, in this moment, we are specifically talking about Jane. And that's because we need a concrete example to work with for all of this to make sense. But the underlying basics, they're going to apply regardless. You can swap out Jane and this particular trope scenario with your own character and your own story logic and your own setup. And it's all all of the things I'm about to say they're going to apply. The second thing we need to keep in mind is that in a perfect world, we would always be able to tweak and adjust detail along that arrow to the point that by the time we get to the square, we find that the square has vanished completely, but this is actually pretty rare. So our goal 
in seeking solutions along the arrow isn't to find perfection. Our goal is to create plausibility. When it comes to plausibility, and this is the third thing we need to keep in mind, is that there is no universal definition of what it means in this context. So what will or will not be considered plausible, it's going to be determined entirely by how you've written your specific character under your specific story logic in your specific plot in your specific story. And then moving that to the next concept, We create plausibility by two specific actions. The first is we tweak the details leading up to the square to provide our character the wiggle room they need to rationalize their decision so that to them it makes sense. To them, it's not stupid. And second, we make sure that the character's thoughts on why they don't think this decision is a very stupid thing are clear and logical to them. And the to them part is the key, is the critical. Because it it's not, the person that needs to believe that this is um, rational and logical is not your readers, it's not you, it's your character. Because if the character believes that it's rational, then, and it, and it makes sense to them in that moment, then even if the reader is like, I wouldn't do that, they can at least understand why the character is doing it. So there's two parts. You've got to tweak the details and then you've got to, to provide the rationality for the character to make the decision that they're making, which is the plot hole, whatever that plot hole is, you've got to change it to make that plot hole not seem very stupid. and then. We need to make sure that it's clearly articulated. It's it's fine if the character thinks that it's smart, but if we don't know why the character thinks that it's smart and we're just left to guess, it's still going to seem very stupid to us. So it's possible on rare occasions to create that level of plausibility using only one of those two factors. So just by tweaking the details, that that does sometimes happen. Uh, Sometimes it can happen just by clarifying the character's thoughts. But generally speaking, you've got to employ both. So now we go back to looking at Jane, who has done this very stupid thing and left the hotel room, even though she knows there are people out there looking for her to torture and kill her. And she knows that the only way she can be safe is to stay in the hotel room. But the plot requires that she leave the hotel room. So those details are on the square and we're going to ignore them. Instead, We look at the arrow leading up to the square and we ask ourselves, what is the smallest, simplest, easiest thing we can change in the story logic to make this very stupid thing feel not quite so very stupid anymore? And so the answer to this is Jane needs to have a very logical, rational reason for doing what she does. And this logical, rational reason must fit within the logic that we've established for her character. And it must fit within the logic that we've established for the story. Now, in our example here, Jane is completely made up and she sits entirely outside any actual real story. So we have a lot of liberty in how we go about providing the elements for plausibility. And this does, it's it's a lot like cheating because I can just make up anything and it works. But if you take a good 
hard look at your own story, your own plot holes, you'll probably find that even in the within the constraints of what you've already established, you still have a lot of options of places where you can create possibilities for probability and accomplish the same thing. So in any case, in our story, the way we're going to set this up um, in our, we have to provide, make up some more details here. We're going to make Jane a mother and Jane is trying to keep her kids safe in all of this. And we also are going to establish that by the time Jane encounters this team that's trying to keep her safe and tells her that she needs to stay in the hotel room, she hasn't quite gotten a full understanding of how bad the situation is. Like she knows there are people trying to find her and hurt her, and she's scared. And it's there that we lay down the first bit of wiggle room for plausibility. So we know Jane is scared. We know she doesn't want to leave the room. And that part is key because if a character does a really stupid thing, should they be eager to and, and dumb and blind and just like, and just go along and do it? They, they've got to have some concept of how stupid this thing is. And so we make sure that Jane is aware. She doesn't want to leave the room. She really doesn't want to leave the room. But she's scared not just for herself, she's also scared for her children. And here's where we add, we go, we will go back into the story and add a tweak to the details to create another layer of plausibility. When the team helping her put her in this room, they left her with the impression that they're about 30 to 45 minutes ahead of the bad guys. And we're going to make this clear by adding a few lines of dialogue between the team members in which they go back and forth about having enough time to set up their security perimeter. And then they leave, according to the original made-up fictional draft that doesn't exist. And the story continues. So another thing we're going to do, another thing about this story that doesn't exist, but it's a detail that we now need to know, is that Earlier, Jane had left her kids with parents. They're, they live a couple hours away, and this is just part of their weekend, their normal weekend routine. And it was only after the kids had it off with grandma and grandpa that everything blew up. So all this time that Jane has been moving nonstop and, and she realizes that bad people are after her, the kids have not really been in the picture for her to worry about because they're with grandma and grandpa. But now that she's in the room and she's stopped and she's beginning to understand what's going on. Now the kids are at the forefront of her mind. And so in order to build this plausibility of why Jane would leave the room and do this very stupid thing, we're gonna utilize her children. And we add a few lines here as she's in the room where we show her pacing and nervous and she knows something bad is going to happen, but she doesn't know when, she doesn't know exactly what, and she starts to get worried about her kids. And she's desperate to get a message to her parents to tell them to keep the kids. Don't bring them back home, get out of town. But now she's stuck because, let me go back and we edit just a little bit to make sure it's clear in the story that when the team grabbed her and stuffed her in this room, 
They didn't grab her belongings. They left all that stuff down in the car, including her purse, including her cell phone. So now she's in this room alone and she realizes she needs to get this message to her parents. Don't bring the kids home. But she doesn't have a way to contact the team that's put her in this room to let them know that, hey, wait a minute, I need to step out and grab my phone so I can contact my parents. And then she's like, well, even if I did, I'm not sure I can trust them to to pass on that message. So she feels trapped and she's desperate and we're building, we're continuing to build this plausibility. And these are just small little insertions into the the movement leading up to that square. This is all along the arrow that we're writing this. And so before we get to the point where Jane does this very stupid thing and leaves the room, we add a little bit of story and we show Jane in the room doing this pacing, feeling the pressure and she eyes the hotel room phone. And she's like, I've got to call my parents. And she reaches for the handset. It's the only phone. Her cell phone's down the car. And then she stops. And she realizes she doesn't know how this is going to affect things. Like maybe the bad people are keeping an eye on the devices of those closest to her, waiting to see if she makes contact as a way to figure out where she is. So she doesn't know what she doesn't know. If she uses this hotel phone room, is it going to lead the bad guys straight to her room? Uh, would it even be safer to make a call from her cell phone? Do the bad guys know about her kids? And now she's just like really, really, really stressed. And then she's like, wait a minute. And this is all in her dialogue. And we're just adding a few little lines here. She and her parents all use the same game app on their phones. She could message them through there. That would be safer, she thinks, right? So she sits on the bed and she hangs her head between her knees. She's like, what do I do? What do I do? And now we take that plot hole, the plot hole itself, that label. Jane does a very stupid thing and we pull it right out in the open and we put it right there on the page. And we have Jane address it directly. Leaving this room would be so stupid. It would be dangerous, but she would rather be dead then have her kids caught up in this mess. So she starts rationalizing. So it's only been a few minutes since the team left. They were planning to have at least a half an hour to get set up before the bad guys got here. I don't want to leave this room. It's dangerous. This is the only place I'm safe. But the kids, the kids, I can get to the car. I can get back in three minutes. And she tells herself, don't think about it. Just do it. Go downstairs, grab the phone, run back up, lock yourself inside. And so Jane does the very stupid thing and she leaves the room. However, because we have given Jane the wiggle room that she needs to rationalize her decision, and we have very clearly walked the audience through her thought process and understand why she felt this decision was the right one, the very stupid thing that was in that square, Jane leaves the room, is no longer very stupid. So the audience in this instance, they'd probably still cringe. They're, they see that kidnapping coming like it's being telegraphed a mile away. There's no shock value when Jane gets grabbed from leaving the room. They're going to recognize this for the trope that it is, but they're going to be far more inclined to roll with it and endure it because now at least Jane's actions are plausible enough 
that they're no longer a very stupid thing and Jane herself is no longer a very stupid character. Definitely not the very stupid character that compels them to throw the book against the wall. Oh my God, such a cliche. Or change the channel if it's, you know, a visual thing. Because even if they don't agree, even if they can see what's coming, they can at least understand what's driving her to make this decision. So even if it's dumb, it's not very stupid. But here's a key aside to this. This type of arrow-driven plot hole avoidance or plot hole plow your way through it, it only works if the changes along the arrow leading up to the square aren't then spun back around as a secondary plot device for creating more tension and conflict. So using this example again, none of these tweaks would work if after all of that, Jane's kids get dragged into this mess anyway. But what happens if the plot actually does require Jane's kids to get dragged into this mess anyway? Well, now we're leading with linked plot holes, and that requires an extra level of care. And we do want to discuss that eventually, but I don't think we're going to get to it in this, this part of this because we have other things to talk to, to go back to. Taylor, we're running a little bit long, so I think we're going to turn this episode into two episodes as well, which is going to turn this into a four-part series on plot holes. So thank you guys very much for listening. We will pick it up right here when we return next week. Thanks for being here, guys. See you next week.